Okay, for our second message today, we will hear from Mr. Curtis Whiteley, and his speech is entitled, Sanctify the Lord in Your Hearts. Thank you, Sean. Good afternoon. As Sean said, the title of this message today is Sanctify the Lord in Your Hearts. And we're going to get into a passage in 1 Peter in just a minute, but we all know that in the beginning days of the Christian movement, as we read in the scriptures, the early Christians faced criticism and questioning on almost all fronts. From the very beginning of Jesus' life and ministry, we see that he had opposition from both government authorities, just basic Jewish brethren, as well as the Jewish leaders. And in fact, this small little movement, secular historians, many of them, are puzzled just how small this little sect grew to be one of the world's largest religions. I think there's an interesting passage on the view of Christianity in the early church that's found in Acts the 17th chapter, verse 6, when the Jews at the city of Thessalonica commented on Christians being the ones who, quote, turn the world upside down. And today, in some ways, it's hard to relate to these Christians because we don't exactly have the same dynamics. I mean, we live in the United States of America and we have our own issues, as we all know that continue to uh, get more complex themselves. But still, despite this, we also face resistance or opposition. In recent years, we've seen a resurgence of criticism among those who would call themselves secular humanists or scientists or philosophers who have risen up and are attacking the very veracity of Christianity, the authenticity, the truth, the genuineness of the Christian faith. And because of this, it is getting more common for Christians as we live in a society that seems to have less and less common as far as your fellow people that you hang out with or see what might have been at one point a majority country and still majority Christianity, but seems to be more and more unbelievers. It's more common, it seems to be, in this day for us to have to justify what we believe among those who question our faith. And so let's go to 1 Peter, the third chapter. I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to read something that Peter told us. We're not going to, there's so much here, we can't get into all of it. But we're going to read just a sliver of, of scriptures. And I've, I've preached on this in the past before, a little bit differently. Uh, but I really want to get into what Peter's saying because I think there's a lot of things that we can learn. Of course, I think you would agree. That's not just about defending the faith, but about our approach and our attitude. And kind of what, what David talked about, I noticed both messages today, has the word heart in it. And that's what I want us to focus on, is our heart. But First Peter, the third chapter, says in verse 13, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Hence where I got the title of this message. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. 
Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And so I just want to look at a little bit of background. I want to point out some specific observations. And then I want to kind of get into some things that we can learn from this. Now this letter is traditionally ascribed to Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter. And it was most likely written around the year 62 to 64 AD. And there were some specific things happening during that time. Most scholars believe this was around the time of what was known as the Great Fire of Rome. Now, this Great Fire during this period of time destroyed much of the city, and the Emperor Nero blamed it on the Christians. Thus, many of them were thrust out of the city of Rome and bringing about a wave of persecution. And so, most likely, Peter wrote this letter while he was in Rome, you can look at 1 Peter 5, verse 13 on your own. But Peter references Babylon as the place he wrote this letter, which was most likely an allusion to Rome itself. So its destination was probably to people that were both Jews and Gentiles in various regions of Asia Minor, which was the primary area that the New Testament letters were circulated during the first century, including Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, a lot of those places that we see referred to all throughout the book of Acts. And some of the key themes of this epistle include suffering for righteousness sake and conduct for holy living. Now when we look at some specific observations, the context of 1 Peter, the third chapter, focuses on living holy in the midst of persecution. If this was the time that this fire took place and persecution was rising among Christians, then it makes sense that Peter is going to talk to them about suffering and persecution. First Peter, the third chapter, verse 14, also alludes to Jesus' eighth beatitude regarding the blessing to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And also, First Peter, the third chapter, verse 15, which we just read, tells us that in the midst of this adversity, we are to, as the title of this message today is sanctify Christ in our hearts and be ready to give a defense or a reason for our hope. And so we have to look at this and just rereading 1 Peter 13 or 3, 13 through 14 and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats nor trouble. So what is the key of suffering? Peter says being lovers of goodness. Peter asks the question about the likelihood of being harmed for being someone who strives for goodness. Now there's an interesting note is in how the New American Standard Bible translates the passage, If you prove zealous for what is good. Now, the Greek word is actually the word zealotis. Now, the idea, that Pe the idea that Peter is speaking of is a zeal and enthusiastic strive for goodness. This word is where we get the name for the Jewish sect, the Zealots, who were a fanatical patriot group that pledged to liberate their native land with every means necessary. Maybe you've heard of them before. In the New Testament. They were bent 
on doing everything they could to liberate their native land there in Judea, there in Palestine, even if it meant sacrificing their own lives. As William Barclay, if you've ever heard of him, he's a famous New Testament commentator. He's no longer living anymore. But he comments on this, and I really like what he says, because I think that it, it's getting to what Peter's trying to say, and that is, he's trying to say, love goodness with that passionate intensity with which the most fanatical patriots love their country. How much do we love goodness? How much do we love righteousness? See, there's a real impact that we believers can have on the society in which we live in. And our society today needs that impact more than ever. And we know the scriptures. We know that things are going to get worse. We, we know that there's prophetic things that are to take place that shows a following away. But when we look at our world, the normal chain of carnal reaction is to repay evil with evil. That's the normal chain of behavior. To take vengeance into our own hands. Somebody wrongs us, we attempt to correct it ourselves. And I say that justice is a very important part of the Word of God. We have a God that loves justice, and we as Christians should fight for justice. But not in the normal, carnal way that our natural instincts wants to do it. The heart of Christianity is reconciliation. The heart, the heart of Christianity is reconciliation because we have a God that's bent on reconciling us to himself. And that's what he's done through Jesus Christ. We don't have a God that is bent on vengeance. And we should be thankful that that's the case. That's what Jesus has done for us between him and our Father. He has reconciled us. And as Christians who are taking on the nature of Christ... When we see these things in the world, our focus should be upon reconciliation. We have the opportunity to demonstrate this in the world. To be lovers of goodness. And I know that's real general. We'll get into a little bit more about how Peter defines this. But lovers of goodness. Of what is right. And it points to God himself who is a God of reconciliation. Previously, to these passages in verses 8 and 9, Peter says, finally, all you be of one mind. And he's defining kind of what this goodness is. Having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. These virtues that people have, that we as Christians are to have, those benevolence towards our fellow man, that attitude of seeking the good of others, to seek peace, to, to run from evil, to just basically simply be courteous to people, to let our light shine. Peter is asking a question when he says this in verse 14. Basically, who will harm you for being doers of good, for falling, for striving, for being passionate or zealous for goodness? 
Now, there's two things that we have to think about here. Peter's asking this question, and first, he's appealing to logic. Because in a lot of ways, and I still think, and I know that you believe as well, that the scriptures are universal. They're unchanging. That these principles still apply to us today. Because most of the time, people who do good to others are not the target for evil. And so there is a practical reciprocation, I guess, of goodness coming to us when we are good to others. But we know, as Peter says in the next verse, but even if suffering comes to you, you're blessed. We know that Peter knows, as he's experiencing himself probably, and the people he's writing to, even if they are good, there's probably going to still be suffering. And this is why he tells us, despite this goodness, suffering and persecution will still come in this world as a direct result of our faith. Our beliefs, maybe our, 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 uh, the character that we hold because of our beliefs, you know? There's times, and I can't think of anything specific, but I'm sure you guys have been somewhere where maybe you love truth and you didn't want to be dishonest about something or you didn't just want to go along and maybe you were reviled for that. In verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. Now we need to note, as I just mentioned, that this suffering is for righteousness sake. And this is why Peter is obviously getting his wording, his ideas, from Jesus Christ himself, who in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 10, says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, a few years ago, I gave a message on James, and, or uh, several messages, as you might, some of you may recall. And one of the first things that James says is, Count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of persecution. And I ask that question, that's really strange. That's, it's a hard thing for the natural mind to comprehend. So you, you know when you read this, the natural reader will probably ask the question, well, how in the world are we blessed when we're persecuted? And it's interesting because there's several elements to this, and I really like, again, going back to William Barclay. It's, a, it's actually one of the first commentaries I ever bought, I think, after I was baptized. And I was listening to some series on James, I think, I don't know if it was Rondard or someone in the church, and I think that they had recommended that commentary, and, you know, me being, you know, like I was, I, any, any excuse to buy a book at the time, I did. But all these years later, it's a little commentary on the, the general epistles, or, you know, as we call them, uh, James through Jude. But he talks about there's two kinds of, of suffering we as Christians face. The first one's just the basic human suffering, such as physical suffering for being mortal. We know that we feel sadness, we feel weariness, we get tired, we have mental distress, we have emotional distress. We feel the mortality of our humanness, even though we've been converted and we are a new creature in Christ. The second way that we suffer as a Christian is a direct result of our faith, including unpopularity, persecution for our beliefs, a deliberate choosing of the different path that is out of step with the world that sometimes bring us trouble and have other people trouble us. Peter tells us that we are blessed because 
what is most important to us, and that is our relationship with God and a heart completely focused on Him, is completely secure. Now, this doesn't mean eternal salvation, once saved, always saved. But what it does mean is, is that the persecution that people bring upon us, the things that people do to us, the one thing they can't take away, they can take away our bank account, they can take away our possessions, unfortunately they can take away our very lives, but they can't take away that precious relationship that we have with God, that sanctification that's in our hearts. On the other hand, we're blessed because it's in contrast to the natural ways of humans. And that is people who are focused on materialism. People are focused on the things that are temporal. Because all of that can be taken away at any time. And so Peter's saying that you as the Christian are blessed. The very thing that's most important to you, that's most valuable, people cannot touch. And that's not saying anything about eternal security, you know, walking away from God, losing salvation. We are also blessed because we are following in the footsteps of Jesus, who is the great example of the one who suffered for righteousness. As I was thinking about this, I thought in my mind, recently we had Passover. I know we're in June now, toward getting ready to be July. But we all, you know... And we do this more than just during the Passover time, but it's just fresh in my mind. That passage where Jesus is being questioned by Pilate. You know, the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate. They're trying to get Pilate to crucify him because Pilate's really the only one that has the authority to do that. And Jesus, standing there in the face of a man who was governor of most of all of the region of Palestine, who had the authority to crucify Jesus, or to declare him innocent of any wrongdoing. Jesus said this in John 19 verse 10. You could have no power against me. Unless it had been given you from above. Jesus understood. That the power of any man. Had none over him. Unless it was given by the ultimate authority in heaven. And of course we know that this was the will of God for him to suffer and die for our sake. We are also blessed because we are certain that we will be vindicated in God's kingdom. As the promises show us. Remember the blessing of persecution of righteousness. As Jesus says in Matthew. He says the blessing is the kingdom of heaven. Now I'm also reminded of Romans the 8th chapter verse 18. A passage I did not give to Brian. But you've probably memorized this. Or probably something that many of us have, have heard many times before. Where Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. Are not worthy to be compared. With the glory which shall be revealed in us. The last part of verse 14. Peter admonishes us not only. Do we count ourselves blessed when we're persecuted or when we suffer? But also to not be fearful. To not be fearful. Let's read that last portion real quick again. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And the last portion says, And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. 
Now the context here, this is actually an allusion to Isaiah the 8th chapter, verses 12 and 13. Peter is actually pointing towards something that happened in the past in the book of Isaiah. And the context in Isaiah from Isaiah the 8th chapter is, um, gives a better understanding of what Peter's trying to say because in this context, Isaiah of Isaiah, King Ahaz is the king of Judah. And he was asked by the kings of Israel and Syria to join them in an alliance because of the ensuing threat of invasion by the Assyrians into the northern kingdom of Israel. So the northern kingdom of Israel tries to go down and says, hey, join an alliance with us so we can stop the Assyrians from coming. Ahaz wouldn't do it. Ahaz refused. And so in response, the king of Israel and Syria threatened to invade Judah. And so what Ahaz does, he says, well, Israel and Syria is going to try to invade me. I'll just go around them and go and try to get on the same team of the people that they're afraid of, the Assyrians. So fearing that an Assyrian invasion to the north of Judah would mean for the kingdom of Judah, Ahaz secretly makes an alliance with Assyria. Something that was not, did not make God very happy. In verses 8, or verses 12 through 13 of Isaiah, the 8th chapter, Isaiah is warning Ahaz of ungodly alliances and was urging him to rely on God instead of man. You see, Ahaz's fear was with men. His fear was with temporal, mortal empires. Isaiah, the 8th, 8th chapter, verse 12 says, Do not say... A conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Nor be afraid of their threats. Nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Peter saying, don't fear man. Fear God. This is the key to the natural avoidance of fear in light of what Peter has already mentioned about where our confidence is. It goes completely along the lines with what Jesus said in Matthew the 10th chapter, verse 28, when Jesus says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Our fear our dread should be with God, not with man. But we know that naturally, fear is a normal response when persecution and threats come. Even we as Christians know it is a real struggle not to cave into this normal human emotion in times of trouble. I mean, we've all done it. We all become fearful sometimes. We can ask the question, what do we get afraid of? Or what is it that humans fear? In a lot of ways, fear is rooted in the anxiety of losing something valuable to, him, to us, such as our loved ones, our health, our comfort, our possessions, our lives. We don't fear things that aren't valuable to us, but all these things, of course, are temporal. And if we set our hearts on these temporal things as our primary values, then we're always going to be fearful. It's easy to fear these things 
because of our finite nature. But we have to understand that our finite nature, no matter how scared we are, if we don't sanctify Christ in our hearts as a center of importance in our lives, that's a God-guaranteed secure. We understand that all those other things are going to pass away. Which brings us to verse 15. Which is where we get the title of this message today. Verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And we've heard this passage many times before. And the first part of this verse is kind of what we just talked about. Setting apart Christ in our hearts. That's what sanctify means. It's basically a sacred place that we put Christ. And it's the center of all of our thoughts. It's the center of who we are. The heart is the sanctuary of true conversion. And as a result, true worship. And as was kind of alluded to earlier when David was talking about, you know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew, the 6th chapter, verse 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the next part of the scripture tells us two things. Read it again, the next part. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who ask you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Raise your hand if you've had someone ask you about your religious beliefs before. Probably a lot of people, and probably many of them, interestingly enough, a lot of them, not all, everyone's situation is different, probably came from people that consider themselves Christians themselves. Because yours might look just a little bit different. But we're, we learned two things here. Two really basic things. Number one, be ready to give a defense for the faith that you hold. Now that same, seems simple. Seems really simple. But unfortunately, I think that we could agree that there seems to be a lack of education within just basic Christianity these days. What, you know, the basic principles of the scriptures are. You know, the, the Bible is not as read as much as it used to be used to be the first thing that people read was the Bible. That's what they cut their teeth on when it came to learning how to read. Be ready to give a defense for the faith that you hold. The word here for defense in the Greek is the word apologia. You've probably heard of that word before. Which means an answer, a formal justification, or a defense. And this is where we get the word apologetics. Maybe you've heard apologetics before, but you haven't ever heard of the word apologia. Uh, Apologia. Well, apologetics is simply, within Christianity, is a branch of theology that is devoted to defending the Christian worldview. By giving a defense. As Christianity was a new movement in the first century, the early Christians faced opposition, as we mentioned at the very beginning, on all different fronts, including unbelieving Jews, the Sanhedrin, as we see, the ones who brought Jesus on charges, even the Apostle Paul in the very beginning, he was the great persecutor of the faith. We see persecution, or we see questioning, rather, let's just say questioning, from pagan Greeks and philosophers that didn't believe in the scriptures, didn't believe in the testimony of Jesus. We can see 
this in many places, including Paul at Mars Hill in Athens. We're going to look at that in just a minute. We see government officials, of course, as well as heretics within the church. Even within the church, there has to be a reason. You have to be able to defend the true authentic faith of Christianity. But the thing is, is that we have to do it in a reasonable way. Not only are we required to be able to give a defense, but the defense has to be rooted in something that we actually can defend. There's an expectation that we know what we believe and why we believe it, and that we are able to give a reason for it. The word reason here is the Greek word logos. And William Barclay in his commentary defines this word as a reasonable and intelligent statement of someone's position. Can we give a reasonable and intelligent statement of our position of why we hold these things to be true? Why we hold this Bible to be the inerrant word of God? As humans, we know that we are created in God's image and God has given us a gift and that gift is reason. The only creature that has the reason to be able to, and obviously, out of all the things that God created, we know that man was special. The only thing that was created in the image of God. And in, as, as, as a part of that creation in the image of God was this gift of reason. And we see this gift manifest itself in pretty miraculous ways. Well, miraculous by means of humans being able to do some amazing things. Go to outer space, create the internet, create the car, create airplanes. All of that is a testimony of this reason that God has given mankind. It's a gift. We also have to be able to use that in defending our faith. The biblical writers appealed to several things. And I think that they have a great example for us to follow on how we can defend our faith. The first thing they used was the Old Testament. Of course, the Old Testament to them wasn't the Old Testament, but what was the Bible, was the Scriptures. The apostles appealed to the Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, for the justification for their hope. Jesus himself did this, appealed to the prophecies that confirmed, confirmed his mission and work, just like the prophets of old did. The prophets would speak things and they would confirm, or Jesus would confirm that it's in line with what the prophet said. And so did the apostles. The apostles also appealed to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Specifically to the fulfillment of all the things that Jesus did. While he was here on this earth. The second thing which is probably the most important. Because it's the basis of Christianity. And that is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is what vindicated him as the Savior, as the Messiah. It was the resurrection of Christ that was at the core of the apostles' defense. Everywhere they would go, they would preach, Jesus died and rose again. And this, the importance of this can be seen even just in the very first chapter of Acts. Whenever Judas, you know, he's dead. The one that, uh, the, the one that betrayed Jesus. And the important thing was, was to select a new apostle. And it had to be someone who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Because it was important for those 
who first went out to be people who actually witnessed the resurrected Jesus. They witnessed this man who was dead, who was put in a tomb, and who came alive again and rose not only back to earth, but also ascended to heaven. The third thing that the apostles appealed to was cultural distinctives. This is where we see biblical authors using things of other cultures to bridge a common ground. Let's go to Acts, the 17th chapter, and we will look at a great example of this. Acts, the 17th chapter. You've probably read about this before many times. We've talked about it. But Paul here is in Athens. And he spends some time trying to go into the synagogue and reason with the Jews and the the Gentile believers. But in Acts, the 17th chapter, and verse 22, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. And so in Athens, they would have all these altars, and they would probably have images of all the different gods that they believed in. But of course, the Hebrew God, there wasn't an image. Because the Jews, they didn't have an image of God. That was something that was actually contrary to what the the Torah, what the Old Testament preached, what what it taught. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, see, Paul's appealing to them, to something that they can see and understanding, Him I proclaim to you, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all life, or gives to all life, breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So they, they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him, this is the really important part, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And so we see two things here. Here we see Paul appeal to the individuals of Athens with some common ground. We see that he appeals first to the inscription. All of them that can see it. Something that they would know. They would probably know all about all the different altars that were out there. And he first points to that thing that they physically have probably walked by many times and saw. He is also appealing to something that they would be familiar with. By quoting, and scholars have actually been able to point out exactly what Paul is quoting. He's quoting a pagan poet, and I can't pronounce his name very well, but Apinamides. That's a pagan poet. He's trying to build a bridge to what the philosophers there in Athens, these men that would get together, and that's what they would do. The scripture tells us that they would get together, and they would just debate things, and have new teachings, and they would debate, and evaluate the merits of these new teachings. Paul's trying to build a bridge. And so when we look at those things, those three things, the Old Testament, the prophecies, 
the resurrection of Jesus and appealing to cultural distinctives, it kind of gives us a pattern that we can go on when it comes to giving an answer to what we believe in. A reasonable answer. But in order to be able to give a reasonable answer, we must know what the reasons are and why it's so important to study the Scriptures. That this was an experience that we went through ourselves and we found it to be true. Not just because someone told us it was true. The second thing that we can learn from this second part of the passage is we must give our answer in meekness and fear. Our answer must be Christ-like. You know, when I was first baptized, I remember, I wouldn't say I was arrogant uh, when I was, you know, first coming. You know, but but, but there's, there's that passion where it comes out, and it's not necessarily an arrogancy, but it's almost like you just want to grab people and be like, why do you believe those things? They're not in the Bible, you know? You want them to know the, the truth. There's a zeal for that. And of course... <laughs> I think that it's important we go through that because I think it's a learning process. You know, we learn and get better. Hopefully we continue to love people and therefore we want to be better at presenting the gospel truth, the the truth of the scriptures. But what I learned, and I think many of us have probably learned, is that you cannot bully someone into accepting your beliefs. It just doesn't work. And you don't want it to be like that because you want it to be from the heart. You, know, you can only pretend to believe in something falsely for so long. If you claim that you believe something but it's really not in your heart, there's not going to be any real transformation that takes place from that. And that's what Christ wants. That's what God our Father wants. It can't be with an arrogant or belittling, belittling spirit. It can't be with a brash tongue. It can't be with a self-righteous attitude. And we know that Christianity and different parts of Christianity and over time within our own tradition sometimes that we've seen, that can be maybe the method that's taken. It has to be with a righteous, God-fearing, and loving attitude. One that demonstrates that Christ truly is, as Peter tells us to be, sanctified in our hearts, set apart in our hearts. It's It's not up to us to convert anyone. It's up to God. Now, we have a responsibility to plant the seeds, but God is the one who harvests. God is the one in his own time that harvests those seeds. give you a little illustration, something that kind of struck out to me this week. Uh, I, looking back on this, I thought to myself, you know, how many times has there been an opportunity for me to give an answer for my faith or, or, or a testimony and I didn't take it? You know, I didn't explain or I, I just kind of, you know, changed the subject or something like that. And we've all been in situations where, you know, maybe someone asks you a question you kind of just quickly answer and you try to change the subject because maybe you're just not in the mood or you feel like the time's not right. But this week, I went to a birthday lunch uh, for a coworker, and it was at a barbecue place. And as you can imagine, we had a barbecue place. There was all kinds of meats uh, that were there, uh, including pork, which was probably uh, one of the most popular meats at this barbecue place. 
And so I got a chopped brisket sandwich, and someone else ordered the exact same thing as I did, but instead of having chopped brisket, they decided to order pulled pork. And so when the waitress brought out our food, she gave me the pulled pork sandwich and not the brisket sandwich. They looked very similar. We had the same side, and luckily there wasn't any problems because I looked at it and quickly realized that this wasn't brisket, but it was pulled pork, and that the waitress, she had like 10 or 11 people she's trying to give food to, so very understandable. She's sometimes going to, you know, mistake who has what. Uh, so we exchanged, we figured out, you know, that the person got my sandwich and I got their sandwich and we exchanged it. No, no foul, no harm done. Well, part of the story that I wanted to bring was because afterwards, a, a coworker of mine that knows about me not eating pork asked me the question, hey, what would have happened if you would have actually took a bite of that pork sandwich? And I thought to myself, what kind of question, I mean, it, 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 later I was driving home, I was like, because he asked me, like, would you have, like, just, like, yelled and, like, ripped your shirt off? <laughs> and it, it, it struck me because I, 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 a good friend of mine uh, wasn't being disrespectful. Uh, but later I was reflecting on that, and I was thinking, man, uh, it, does, uh, he doesn't really know how I would handle that. And, of course, we've probably all been in a situation with that where we accidentally took a bite of something that was unclean. And there's not a ritual that we had to go home to. We didn't have to, you know, burn our clothes or anything like that. Yeah, we, exactly. None of that. But what was interesting was is that as I was reflecting, reflecting upon this, I, I, I didn't regret not taking that as an opportunity to give him a full-fledged you know, dissertation on clean and unclean meat doctrines. That's not what I really regretted. What I regretted was, is I didn't take that opportunity to just talk about the God of the universe that I try to follow and how I believe that God of the universe has ordained all things. And not only has he ordained, you know, how I'm to walk spiritually, but also he doesn't neglect the physical part because they go hand in hand. The physical is a reflection, or supposed to be a reflection of the spiritual. And so, was it a missed opportunity? Well, maybe. I'll see this person again. Conversation might still come up. And so, little things like that, I thought to myself, this might have been a missed opportunity to be able to proclaim the God of the universe. Now, this person is a believer uh, involved in his own church. Uh, but maybe I could have planted a seed on getting him interested to understand a little bit more fully, you know, what the scriptures say. Because it, it's not just about clean and unclean meats. It, that can lead to all kinds of other questions. Well, if I should do that, maybe there's some other things I should do. Maybe there's some other things I should focus on. And so that's just something I wanted to bring up. And of course, the other illustration, or the other way I could go about it, I could have also, you know, and it wouldn't be part of my personality. I don't think there's anyone in here that has that personality. I could have been haughty about it and been like, well, if I would have ate that meat that you Gentiles eat or you, you know, unbelievers eat, you know, you, there, there, there could be, you know, you could take that one or two ways. And of course, we, we don't have that kind of attitude. But people that might know a little bit about our beliefs, 
it probably is a legitimate question. Like, what would you do? Is there something? I mean, it, it could have been an opportunity where I more fully explained to him that, you know, we're, we're Christ-centered Christians. You know, our testimony, our, our faith, our, what we believe in is not rooted in whether or not we eat pork or not. That's an important part, but kind of like Acts 15. Acts 15, you know, to the Gentiles, he said, that, and I'm just summarizing or paraphrasing, the most important thing was for them to understand about Christ. Not because the other things were important, but because those other things would come in their due time as Moses had been taught in the synagogues, basically the daughter of the age. And so, I just wanted to bring that out. Not only does our answer have to be in a Christ-like meekness, but it must be with respect. We are to answer with an attitude of respect for the person. If we don't, can we really be saying that we're doing it in love? And this can be a very difficult thing. As we all know, the old saying goes, there's two things you don't talk about, right? When you're at a dinner table or you're at a party with people that maybe aren't completely in line with the way that you see things. There's two things, religion and politics. And religious discussions can turn into some of the most intense, angry, and unrighteous forms of conversation. And they really can. Charles Stanley, maybe you've heard of him before, famous pastor uh, that preaches and he has uh, In Touch. I, I never have listened to him a lot, but I've read a few things when I see little snippets, but I did see a sermon snippet one time, and he said some of the most bitter arguments that he had ever had was over the Word of God. And he wasn't bragging about it. And he was admitting that it was probably unrighteous and vain and futile. It, it was probably unrighteous and in vain and in a futile endeavor that he engaged himself in. That he allowed his human carnal characteristics to overcome him. And even though what might have started out as something that was genuine turned in where his carnal nature took over. And maybe we've all been in that situation. So the defense must be in reverence. It must be in fear and meekness. But it also must be where we truly show our Christ-like conduct. The very last part of that, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Verse 16, having a conscience, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And there is no doubt that walking the walk of the Christian life is the best defense against those who object to Christianity. And I've said this before. There's two things I've said before. You are the only Bible that many people will ever read. Meaning that you, your conduct, is the closest thing that pe many people, not all, the closest thing to Scripture that people will ever come into contact with. And what I mean by that is that how you live your life. One of the biggest criticisms of Christianity among skeptics, and I've heard this and I've seen people that I know personally believe this, that skeptic, that criticism is the unchristlikeness of so many of those who claim Christ as their Lord but then they see how they live their lives outside of church or outside of 
those claims. As Christians, we represent Christ here on earth. We must remember that when we engage in discussion about our faith with people, we must present them with a picture of what Christ is like with our conduct. Does our conduct prove that our convictions and claims of Christ are truly genuine? In the early church, not, not the early church of the New Testament, but years afterwards, there was a great persecution that came upon Christians, as well as Jews. And you've probably heard of stories where Christians were thrown into the Colosseum, and uh, they were, you know, made as basically bait for the spectators to see them run for their, for their, for their lives from wild beasts like lions and other animals. During that time, a lot of people saw how genuine people's faith in the midst of persecution, in the midst of being intense suffering, they saw, they saw how genuine, even though they were facing these things, people kept their faith and continued preaching those things about Christ and, and, and living a, a life that was representative of Christ. And it made people who were not believers say to themselves, I really need to look into this. What kind of power does a person have to be able to face these kind of trials and despite that, not even fear it, but just take it? Man, that's some faith right there. I need to look into that. So in conclusion, we must look at the implications of what Peter tells us, the, the applications. First, we are to seek goodness to alleviate any unnecessary persecutions or criticisms or shames on the name of Christ. We are to hold God as above all things by sanctifying Christ in our hearts and showing Him as our true treasure. By doing this, we will be equipped and ready to give an answer to those who ask a reason for our hope. By doing this, we will also know what we believe and we'll be in a position for God working through the Spirit to help us with the appropriate answer. And finally, by doing this, we will be living a life that is worthy of the Christian calling and walking and living and being a walking and living witness to the power of the truth of Christ.